Has something in the Bible ever kept you up at night? Have questions of your faith ever driven you crazy? How many hairs do I have? What did God do on his day off? Have you ever had a question you were just too afraid to ask? Will my dog go to heaven? Where do babies come from? When a bell rings, do angels really get wings? Well, now all your questions will be answered with America's favorite church game. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready to... Stop the Pastor! With your host, the beacon of the Bible, the guru of the gospel... He puts the attitude in the Beatitudes. Ladies and gentlemen, Clay Paul. Hey, can we do that applause thing like every week? Well, hey, my name is Stump. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, it is great to see you this morning. And uh, if today is your first time here, this is a little different, so. but we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to answer some uh, fun questions. We're going to answer some challenging questions, and I think it's going to be uh, helpful for all of us. If you have not been here before, over the last couple of months, uh, folks have been submitting questions. We've gotten, I don't know, a couple dozen different questions that people have submitted, everybody from adults all the way down to some of the kids, and actually... Some of the kids' questions were among the best ones that we got. And so I picked a number of them, tried to weave them kind of into a theme for this week. Next week, they'll be a little bit more random, and uh, we're just going to have a great time. So let me just start off with a question that you will be able to tell right away. It came from one of our kids, but it's a great question. Did Jesus have a pet? <laughs> there you go. Did Jesus have a pet? How do you answer that question? You know, I could say I'm stumped, but as I chewed on it, I thought, you know what? Jesus was pretty busy. And so did he have like a dog on a leash kind of following along or whatever? Probably not. But, but imagine if you were living out in the woods in a cabin or something like that, would you have a pet or would all of the animals around be kind of like your, yeah, okay, all right, you see where I'm going with this. Let's, let's, uh, I want us to take a look at a passage here in uh, Luke chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Consider the ravens, another bird. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? So did Jesus have any pets in the traditional 21st century American sense? Probably not. He was traveling around too much, wasn't in any place long enough to be able to have pets that are going around with him. But does God love the animals? Does he care for the animals the way that we care for pets? Does he enjoy watching them and seeing them? Absolutely he created them, he enjoys them, he cares for them. And so that would be my answer to that question. But I would say, this is one other, one other thing I want to point out. God cares about his creation. You know, the little kids, they want to know, does, is God like them? Does he like the things that they like? Yeah, when it comes to animals and that sort of thing, absolutely. God cares about us, he cares about the animals around us. So then the inevitable question that follows that is, do pets go to heaven? Okay, again, obviously from a child, although 
Parents, you probably want to know the answer to this question. And I had a friend, I, you know, I kind of took a poll of a number of different people. And my favorite answer from one person who is kind of a little crotchety from time to time is, well, I certainly know some pets that aren't going to heaven. <laughs> but I think the best answer came from Billy Graham. And uh, years ago, a little girl asked Billy Graham, she said, Mr. Graham, will my horse be in heaven? Ooh. Billy Graham looked at her and he said, you know, sweetie, if you need your horse to be in heaven in order for you to be happy, your horse is going to be there. And I thought that was a brilliant answer. You know, heaven is going to be a place where there's no sorrow, where there's joy and where there's happiness. And so if we need our pets to be in heaven, they're going to be there. But think about that question for a minute and you realize that there's something that's going on behind that question. Children experience death primarily through the death of animals. And once in a while, and it's just a horrible tragedy when a, when a child loses a parent or a brother or sister or, or, or a friend. But for most children, they experience death through the passing of animals, whether it's a pet or whether it's the squirrel or the bird or, you know, whatever it is that they see on the, on the side of the road. And they know that something is wrong with death. And they can't articulate it in you know, some in, incredible theological fashion. But they know death isn't the way things ought to be. And so they're beginning to ask those kinds of questions. And uh, so I think, it's, I think it's good that they ask those questions. But I want to go uh, just one step a, a little bit deeper than this. And... When you think about the way God created the world, there were animals in the Garden of Eden, right? And there are going to be animals in eternity. And God says this in the book of Isaiah. He says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. So, Is Fluffy going to be in heaven? I don't know about the specific pet, but will there be animals there? Absolutely. And I think we're actually going to be more surprised about some of the people that we see there than about some of the animals that we see there. So there's your question. There's your answer to your question. Do pets go to heaven? But now we're going to take a little turn here and we move into some of the questions that some of the adults were asking. And one that follows on from pets going to heaven is why do bad things happen to good people children know why do bad things happen to good pets we ask why do bad things happen to good people and that is that's probably one of the most challenging questions that was asked actually it was in some sense the most challenging question that was asked and i want to hold that for a little bit because it deserves an answer that takes Uh, Take some context to set that up. So in order to set the context for that question, I want to ask another one of the challenging questions, and that is, how can we reconcile the loving God of the New Testament with the vengeful God of the Old Testament? You know, you, you read the New Testament and you see God is love, and he tells us that we're to... Uh, love one another. And the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Second one is love your neighbor as yourself. And then you contrast that 
with the Old Testament where there's all this wrath and there's all this anger and there's all this killing and just all this nastiness that's going on. And you ask the question, and it's a fair question, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament or does he kind of get you know, gentler and milder? Does he mellow with age or, or, or something like that? And, and a quick response, and, and we could give a very quick kind of you know, one or two sentence response would be to say that if you read the Old Testament carefully, you see that there's an awful lot of grace and there's an awful lot of love and there's an awful lot of forgiveness in the Old Testament. Where did those commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor yourself, where did those come from? They came from the Old Testament. Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. So there is that continuity there. And then if you look at the New Testament, Jesus talks an awful lot about hell. And the book of Revelation it's, it's essentially, it's like hell on earth, so much of it. So there's an awful lot of love and grace and forgiveness in the Old Testament. There's an awful lot of challenges and difficulty and pain and wrath and, and anger in the New Testament. So at one level, we can say it's not completely accurate to see the God of the Old Testament as vengeful and the God of the New Testament as loving because there's really, you see a continuity between the two. But I want to go a step deeper than that And in order to do that, I want us to take a look briefly at the storyline of the Bible, beginning in the book of Genesis and ending in the book of Revelation. Because if we see the whole storyline of the Bible, what we're going to see is that God is not really changing. He's simply unfolding the story and we're experiencing it in real time. So those in the Old Testament had not experienced, for example the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's begin in the book of of Genesis and in Genesis chapter one, first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, right there, God creates the heavens and the earth, which leads to another question that a parent actually sent in on behalf of a child. Actually, I think it was on behalf of the parent because the child was kind of, you'll see in a second, was a a fairly... uh, intellectually savvy kind of a child. So the child asks the question, how old is God? Mom, being very good at answering those kinds of questions, says, older than time. Child comes back and says, okay, mom, how old is time? There you go, you know, and they could keep begging that question back and back. So I went to that fount of all knowledge, Wikipedia, to find out how old is time. And it depends on who you ask. If you ask this guy named Bishop Usher from a couple hundred years ago who took the genealogies of the Bible and kind of laid them all out, he came up with the answer 6,000 years. And if you ask NASA how old it is, they're going to say it's actually 14 billion years. My answer, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God how old time is. I'm not exactly sure. I think it's a great question, but in some sense, I'm stumped. But in another sense, part of the reason why we're stumped is it's almost a category mistake to ask the question, how old is God? And I'm not criticizing the child. It's a great question that a child would ask. But if you step back for a second, is God really bound by time or is he outside of time? We can say he existed before time, but that's a time-bound kind of a statement. And God himself is not really bound by time. He exists outside of it. Take a look at uh, what Jesus says here in John chapter 8. He says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, 
before Abraham was born, I am. If you're in a high school and you turn that into your AP English teacher, she ain't going to like it, right? A little problem. Before Abraham was born, past tense, I am, present tense. We don't speak that way in English. It doesn't work that way. And that's because we are time bound. But what Jesus is essentially saying is, I am the eternal present. I am outside of time. Don't try to put me in this box that you call time. I created time so that you people could keep track of yourselves, but I'm not bound by it. God is outside of time. Think about it from the perspective of, say, a book or a movie or a play, right? Let's just work with a book. The author of the book is outside of the time that exists within the book. The characters exist in a time span within the book, and they march through their lives in the book experiencing a chronology, experiencing a passing of time. But the author doesn't. She sees the beginning, the middle, and the end all at once. And we, when we read the book, usually, especially if if you're the type of person that doesn't cheat and jump right to the end, you experience it along with the characters and you feel the tension that they feel and you feel the pain that they feel and you're looking for what's the resolution going to be. And the same thing is true with God's storyline, with, with history that we're going through. So you've got God creating in the Garden of Eden, and then you've got things happening. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And we are experiencing as if we are the characters in a book, but it's reality. It's not fiction. It's reality. And so God is outside of time, looking at it all at once, not time-bound. So he can see the beginning the middle, and the end. And the comforting thought about that, all that is nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing takes him by surprise because he doesn't have to wait to get to the last page because it all exists in an eternal present for God. So that was an awesome question that they asked. And then follow-up question to that is, why did God create people? Why did he create the world? Again, I just love some of these questions. And if, if, if I were going to tweet an answer to this, I'd say, because he wanted to. Because he enjoyed it. Because he's creative. Because that's who he is. It's part of his nature. Why does an author write a book? Why does an artist paint a painting? Why does a composer create a, a, a musical score? Why does a sculptor make a statue? Because she can't help but do it. It's just part of her. There's something inside that just has to come out because that's who she is. And in the same way, why does God create the world? Because that's who he is, because he wanted to, because he enjoyed it, because he is creative. In Isaiah chapter 43, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Listen to a piece of music 
that's awesome and you say, who wrote that or who's singing that? Read a book and you're like, I want to get another one by that same author. Brings glory to the author, to the creator. God creates us and it brings glory to him and he enjoys it. You know, and, and, and God made us, he made you and me in his image. He made us to look like him. In some sense, we're his self-portrait. And just as any of you, and I know there are some artists here, and you, you, you create your own self-portrait, and it's kind of like the pinnacle of what you do. And we are the pinnacle of God's creation. And so when we think about that, what's the significance of that? God delights in us. God delights in us. He loves us. He enjoys us. And he wants to have a relationship with us. So that's why God created the world. But why did he create bad things? One of the children asked. And again, you're going to see the kids ask just some awesome questions. Why did God create bad things? We want to know the answer to that as well, but we're not, we're a little bit scared to ask a question like that sometimes because implicitly when we ask that question, we're kind of blaming God for the evil in the world. And we're a little bit hesitant to do that at some point. But the question behind the question is, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? Because there is evil in the world. Fluffy died, right? You know, that's evil. That's not good. And, and, and kids, kids know that. And so in some sense, we're, we're questioning God's character. But take a look here in Genesis chapter 1. God saw all that he has made, and it was very good. That's what he says. That's his pronouncement at the end of his time of creating the universe. He sees there, he looks at it, he sees everything that he made, and it was very good. So the answer to the question, why did God create bad things? He didn't. He created good things. Everything that he made was good. But then we got to ask our questions, okay, then why is why are there bad things in the world? Why is there evil in the world? And if you think about it for, for just a minute, you realize God created everything that's good and he's the source of life. He's the source of all that's good and he created us and he created us to depend on him and he provided for all of our needs. He provided all the food that we needed. He provided everything, even companionship, even relationship with one another, not just relationship with himself, but relationship with each other. And he gave us free will. He gave us the choice as to whether we're going to trust him or we're going to trust ourselves, as to whether we're going to depend on him or whether we're going to try to live independently of him. He didn't force us to follow him, but he wanted us to follow him because he's good and because he provides for all of our needs. But we chose not to. We chose to try to live independently of God. And if you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the choice that they made to eat the fruit that God said not to eat was a choice to say, I think I know better than God does. And the problem is, we don't. And as soon as they did that, evil enters into the world. Things are broken and nothing has been the same since that. And so our relationships with each other, our relationship with God is broken. We try to hide from him. We try to hide from each other. And so when you ask the question, Why did God create bad things? No, God didn't create bad things. The world is broken and it's our fault, not God's. And the question then becomes, what's God gonna do about that? And as we see this story unfolding, 
we begin to see what God is doing about the fact that the world is broken. And interestingly, right in the middle of the situation in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam and Eve had sinned, God is is speaking to the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve. And he says something very interesting to him. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And if you're looking at this, and this is the first time that you've seen this, you're like, what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about? But that phrase, he will crush your head, was probably meaningless to a large extent to Adam and Eve at that point. At least they didn't get the full significance of it because they're at the beginning of the story. And at the beginning of the story, it's kind of hard to know what's going on. But if you have read the entire story and if you've worked your way through the Bible, or at least you know kind of how it ends... What's going on there is God is making a promise that sometime in the future, an offspring of the woman is going to defeat the serpent. Okay, so what does that mean? An offspring of the woman ultimately is going to be Jesus, who is going to defeat Satan, the one who is behind the serpent. Good is going to triumph over evil. God is going to set right and fix what was broken. Could you tell that at the beginning of the story? Absolutely not. No, you couldn't tell that at the beginning of the story. Maybe partway through the Old Testament, some of the characters like Moses and others, maybe we're beginning to get this as to going on. But really, until you see Jesus come and live and die and be resurrected, you really don't know the significance of that. But that's the same thing with any good story. If you've got a good story or a good movie, you're going to have the tension is set up and you're going to have hints of what the solution is going to be. But if it plays out in the first five minutes of the movie, there's nothing else to watch for the next hour and 55 minutes, right? Similarly, this is a storyline, and movies are exciting to us and interesting to us because they fit with real life. God didn't create the storyline of history in order to mimic some movie. Movies are successful, and books are successful, and plays are successful because... They echo real life. So we've got the tension set up at the beginning. We've got a hint of what's going to come, but it doesn't play out until much, much later. So we're asking the question, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? How do we deal with that? Well, we see, well, you know what? He's already given us hints as to what's going to come later on. And so after that, so after Adam and Eve chose to act independently of God and their relationship with one another and their relationship with God is broken. The very next event that's recorded in the Bible, Genesis chapter four, Cain kills Abel. You got murder. That's the very next event. Take a look here, Genesis four, verse eight. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We choose to go our own way and what happens next? Murder. And that's, you know, that's the natural outcome. That's the brokenness. It ought not to be that way. That's certainly not the way that God created it. And in fact, God had given Cain some warning. Don't do what you're about to do. And Cain chose to do it anyway. And he murdered his brother Abel. And in the same way that we're angry at murder, and you see it on the news like every night, and I've just, I, sometimes I just get tired of watching the news because there's all this Horrible stuff that's going on. We get angry at murder. We get angry at prejudice. We get angry at child abuse. We get angry at injustice. We get angry at poverty. 
Why shouldn't God get angry at those things as well? And he does, and he punishes them because they're not right and they're not the way that they ought to be. So when we ask the question, why is there wrath and such in the Old Testament? Well, because there's sin and there's injustice and there's murder and those sorts of things. And we see the next, the next thing that happens after that is, is the flood. And God says, things have gotten so bad, I'm going to wipe it out and start over with Noah. And yet, even though he starts over with Noah, who was not perfect, but who did trust in God, we just see over and over and over again the story of humanity all throughout the Bible is God says, trust me, we say, I will, and then we go and live as if we don't. God says, obey me, and we say, I will, and then we go and do what we want to do. God says, I've provided for you, and we say, thank you, and then we turn somewhere else to have our needs met. And it goes over and over and over again, really throughout the whole story of the Old Testament. And there are people however, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament who got it, who trusted in God. They weren't perfect. They were just like us. They're broken. They're fallen. They're imperfect. But they kept looking back to God and kept trusting him. Take a look in Genesis chapter 15, one of my favorites. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. And if you read the story of Abram, who later became Abraham in the Old Testament, Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You read those stories there of him. There's time and time and time again where Abraham messed up, where he sinned, where he did wrong things, where he disobeyed God. But he trusted in God, he believed God, and God looked at him and said, even though you're not perfect, even though you're broken, even though you don't live the way I want you to live all the time, you trust in me, and so I'm gonna view that as righteousness we're going to have that right relationship with one another. And Abraham is just one example. And there's a long line of people. Isaac follows Abram. Same thing, trusting in God. Jacob follows Isaac. Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah. There are a number of women that are mentioned. Woman named Rahab. Woman named Ruth. Abraham's wife, Sarah. And on and on and on. And the New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapter 11 whole chapter devoted to the men and women of faith in the Old Testament who, far from perfect, had a right relationship with God because they trusted him in the way that Adam and Eve failed to do while they were in the garden and in the way that we do now. God made promises and they trusted that God was going to fulfill his promises. But take a look what it says at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them, none of them received what had been promised since God had planned to do something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. They lived back here in the Old Testament time. They trusted that God was going to fulfill his promises, but none of them received the fulfillment of the promise because the plan hadn't played out yet. It hadn't unfolded yet. Jesus had not yet come because God was waiting for the right time to reveal his son who is going to be not just their savior, but our savior as well. 
And so they trusted in God looking forward to the promises. We trust in God looking back to the promises. God is not bound by time in the same way that we are. So we see that continuity there between the Old and the New Testaments. And that brings us to the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. And what God does here is just amazing. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. Notice the connections that are going on between John chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament, and Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Old Testament. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. How did God create the world? If you've read Genesis chapter 1, he spoke it into existence by his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so you see the continuity in the story, in the history, in the plan of God unfolding here. And then we drop down into John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We're talking about Jesus here. We've seen his glory. The glory is of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. What's happening here is the creator enters into his creation. The author enters into the narrative, but not in the way just like Alfred Hitchcock would always make a, a cameo appearance, right, in his, in his things. And once in a while, Da Vinci might, you know, paint himself into something that he created. But those are works of fiction, you know, some of them. And, and it's different, This is not a work of fiction. You've got the author entering in. You've got the creator entering in to rescue the characters from a plight that we ourselves created. So who's the hero of the story? God's the hero of the story. We just don't always recognize it as we're going through it because we live in that in-between time where there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering And there's a lot of difficulty. John chapter 3, just a couple of chapters later. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God's intention all along, Genesis 3, 15. Offspring of the woman is going to win. He's going to triumph. And that's what's going on with Jesus. Planned outside of time. From our perspective, planned before time began. Played out through history, culminates in what Jesus does on the cross. Yet, we still live in a time that's not perfect. And so we have to ask ourselves that question, why are bad things happening to good people? Why, as somebody asked, did my child die? Why did he have to suffer so much in the process? Why did so-and-so get cancer? Why did... And for the most part, we don't know. I can't tell you. I don't know that anybody can tell us why a particular child died or why someone was hit by a drunk driver. Once in a while, okay, some, you know, a lifelong alcoholic gets cirrhosis of the liver. I think we can see a connection there. But so much of the time... We don't know exactly why. And that's part of the challenge of this. And when people are, are, are asking this question, they're asking not just an intellectual question, we're asking an emotional question. And I almost hesitated 
to bring up this question, but it was asked so many different times in so many different ways. But I want you to understand, this question deserves not just five minutes. It deserves an entire message. It deserves multiple messages. And actually, it deserves a hug, you know, at the beginning, because that's what we need, right? When we're asking that question, if you have lost a loved one, do you need intellectual answers? Or do you need someone to just say, I love you and, you know, cry with you and, 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 and love on you in that situation? So please realize I, that I understand that we're skimming this and just giving you a framework for looking at it. But from an intellectual perspective, from that limited intellectual perspective, suffering and death are the result of living in a broken world. Most of the time, we don't know why. Beyond that, we don't have specific reasons. But the problem, as I said, with those intellectual answers is they don't really address the pain that we feel in a very personal way when we're going through that suffering or when someone we love very much is going through that suffering. And I want to take a look at a passage that's been comforting to me as I've thought about this, and hopefully it'll give you uh, a little bit of a deeper insight into the God who ultimately comforts us. And this is, is found in John chapter 11, and it's an account of Jesus' interaction with his friend Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus were good friends. And when Jesus would be in their town, he would usually stay with them. So there was a good relationship there. And one day Jesus learns that Lazarus is sick and then he eventually dies and Jesus is not there. And four days later, Jesus shows up on the scene and we pick up the action there. And we see when Jesus saw Mary, Lazarus' sister, weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. And when we read that phrase, he was deeply moved in spirit, the initial, our initial thought is there's an emotional response there. And there is, but that actually comes in a, a couple of verses later. We'll talk about that in a minute. That phrase, he was deeply moved, is actually used in secular and non-biblical literature of a horse snorting. And I, I thought about trying to do that for you. We're not going to do that. But it's just kind of like, just, it's just that, you know, it's that, it's that outrage. It's indignation. It's anger because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is outraged because he didn't create the world with death in it. He did not intend for there to be death. And he's angered, he's outraged at what's happening there. We've got a God who is just as outraged, who is just as troubled at the death and the pain and the suffering as we are. He created a perfect world and we broke it. And right away, God promised to fix it. But his plan to do so is taking, in our limited understanding, time. In his, it's all together, all at once. But not only was Jesus outraged, he's also emotionally drawn to the situation. The shortest verse in the Bible, take a look here, John eleven thirty-five. Shortest verse in the Bible. You've already memorized it now. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Not because Lazarus was dead and he was not going to see him any longer, because Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few minutes. That's not why he's weeping. He's weeping because he feels our pain. He empathizes with us. He cares about us. So Mary and Martha and others are there just 
bawling their eyes out. And Jesus is just drawn into the moment because he cares, because he's compassionate, because that's who he is. Because just like he cares for the animals, he cares for us as well because he created us in his image. And he feels the pain that we feel of living in a broken world. And ultimately, he's going to fix it. Revelation chapter 21, right near the end of the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. The author is now permanently with us. He will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God created, we messed it up, disobedience for thousands of years, turning away from God, trusting in him back and forth, people looking forward to the promise. The promise comes in Jesus. He lives, he dies, he rises from the dead. We're now living in an in-between time where we've got a partial fulfillment of everything that God has done. We look back at the cross, we look back at the resurrection, and we look forward to eternity, recognizing that if we are trusting in what Christ did on the cross, we get to spend eternity with him in a place of no more crying, no more tears, no more death, and no more pain. And I wish, I wish we had more time this morning to explore this. And if you're interested in further kind of exploring some of these things further, let me encourage you, sign up for the project. We don't cover the whole span in great detail, but we dig more deeply into different pieces of this. Discussion-oriented environment, you can ask all the questions you want, great interaction. And if you have any specific questions related to some of the answers that I've given, and, and I know we could go a lot deeper on these, let me know afterwards. But sign up for the project, good opportunity for you to do that. Shoot me an email if you've got some other questions or some of the things Uh, that we've talked about because these are so key and these are so important. This is why we keep coming back to things like this over and over and over again. And I want to close with a passage from John chapter 11. Same same area we were looking at. Jesus says to Martha, Lazarus' other sister, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. We're going to die but we're going to live afterwards if we believe in Jesus. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die ultimately, eternally. And then he says, do you believe this? And that's the question that I need to ask myself on a daily basis. Because yes, I trust in God, but there's so many times when I choose not to, when I choose not to obey, when I choose not to trust, when I choose to try to live independently, and I need to continually ask myself, Do I believe this? Am I trusting in God? Do I believe that God entered into the world, that the author entered into the storyline in order to rescue me from my plight that I created by my disobedience and feeble attempts to try to do life on my own? And I need to ask myself that question. I need to ask myself, does God care enough Do I trust him even though living time-bound as I am? I can't fully see the end. I don't always understand what's going on. But do I believe that he is good and that I can trust him? And when I look at the cross, the answer that I have to give is, yeah. 
because I realized that God loved me enough to go through the pain of sending his son to die for my sin. And he's powerful enough to raise him from the dead. And if that's the kind of God who I worship, then I can trust him. And the question I just want to ask you guys is whether you're at the beginning of your faith journey, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for your entire life, ask yourself that question on a daily basis. Do I believe this? Because if we do, we have comfort now, not total freedom from pain, but comfort in the midst of our pain. And ultimately, we get to spend eternity with a God who loves us more than we could imagine in a place that is beyond our wildest dreams. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing story. What an amazing story. And it's all true. I thank you for creating us. I thank you for giving us the opportunity to choose. And even though we chose wrong, I thank you that you sent your son to die, to pay for my sins. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. And I thank you that you're preparing a place for me and each of us here. And Father, I pray for myself and each of us here that day by day, moment by moment, we would be continually asking ourselves, do we trust you? And I pray that we would strengthen our faith in you because we're weak. Help us to see you and be drawn to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning and I hope you'll come back for part two next week.